0: Welcome to the Haunted Hacker podcast. This is the first one in about six months. Um, A lot of you know that I've been out. um, I was in treatment for PTSD, uh, complex PTSD. Uh, So yeah, what I thought was going to take 30 days took five months. And the one only book that I took to treatment with me was Richard's Mobius and Memoir. And I lived off that book. Uh, you have no idea, Richard, what that book did for me during treatment, um, even so much as I left it behind in the veterans apartment so other veterans could read it. Um, I think it's that that important. So without further ado, Richard, uh, introduce yourself as you know, people haven't heard of you before, which I find it hard to believe, and uh, tell me what's going on in your life.
1: Yeah, I'm pretty, pretty loud voice, so I've probably been heard here and there. Um What's going on is, is that I'm continuing, and that's the best thing that's going on about my life. I'm uh, writing now the fourth Mobius book. It's, it's still it's a standalone tr- uh, trilogy, mm. uh, and people are buying the set, which is great, and it does all hang together. But I started a fourth book, which I guess would make it a tetralogy, the Google tells me. Um, it's slightly different, the same themes, and I love that I can still write. I I am doing podcasts like this. I'm doing speeches. Um, Life is right now, you know, here and now, for for now, good. And, uh, you know, I was just checking out the prognosis on the kind of cancer I had. Um, And it's uh, this or that or the other, depending on whether it's this or that or the other. So you're left saying, well, just keep in touch with the docs, Uh, you know, stay in, in treatment. And um, and hope you just live and live and live because life is so delicious. And coming up against the threat that it can be taken from us, which we both had to face, um, it, it just deepens the sense of, boy, I, I want this. And, and I want the strength and the energy and the courage and even, uh, dare I say it, the love on, on a technical broadcast uh, or podcast the love that sustains us through all of this, um, you want that to keep coming in. It's essential. And then it becomes reciprocal. And, and then you find yourself part of a web of connectedness and and energy. And if you focus on that, you know, it's like all things are bearable.
0: Yeah. I, I feel like when I went to treatment, I felt really disconnected at first. Um, of course. You know, going through what I went through, um, and then going, you know, across the country to go to treatment. You know, I, I didn't find that peace and solitude until I got to Banyan's treatment center with the veterans. Um, and I think that that camaraderie, that connection, that, you know, we're in this together, um, that we all have inherently became stronger. And I think that's what what really kept me going. What I found really interesting though, is, is a lot of the stuff in Mobius Memoir, um, could directly relate to my life. And I I think that's what you're doing is so important, not just for the intelligence community, but also for, you know, military and and veterans. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot that you can get out of that book. And I actually gave it to a friend of mine and, uh, Randy read it. He's a veteran, he's a, a Marine and, uh, he was just enthralled. And it kept us going and kept us talking every day when we got back to the department from treatment. But there's, there's so many things in that book, like I said, that I think can relate to a lot of people, not just intelligence community or veterans, but just people in everyday life.
1: Right. Well, thank you very, very much. And um, I, I think you know the story of I'm reaching for a piece of paper so I can take notes, not forget things. Um, uh, how, how it came about was I had lost my closest friends uh, one one to retirement, others to retirement, and distance far away during COVID, but my very closest friends in the agency at, at, at the NSA, which is where I um, connected best with people. Um, and I don't exaggerate, you know, I, I'm not a super spy. I'm not even a spy. I'm a, a confidant, uh, a contractor, a consultant, and a speaker. And all of that played into my relationships to, uh, from time to time, the agency, but above all, to the people who became my closest friends, uh, going all the way back to uh, DEFCON 4, where I spoke uh, 26 years ago. Uh, 26 years of speaking at DEFCON uh, back then is where I got close to them, and uh, they were wonderful friends. And we talked about all the ins and outs of of the real complex and crazy world that uh, we have generated for ourselves through what we have done with intelligence and secrecy uh, and and now with everybody having a hand in disinformation and misinformation uh, it's it's a crazy making time and when i lost them i thought i'm i'm going to write a write a fictional account of one of the work that one of my best friends did and another friend heard that and he called bless his heart and said you can't do that because you have to fictionalize it ever since, again, another guy at NSA said, you can't ever tell the truth again unless you do it in fiction. Uh, and he said, people will mistake what you say for his biography, and that's disrespectful to his life. And, and I realized he was absolutely right. I did not have the, the license to do that. So it didn't take long before the light bulb went on, and I realized that the work I had done in the ministry um, – Involves the manipulation and in the best sense of the word, the development, presentation and manipulation of personas in order to elicit relationships where information, energy and affection can transit. Mm -hmm. And I learned how to do that over 20 years. And I did it with sincerity. And I did it on behalf of affirming and enhancing the autonomy and and the uh, agency and the freedom and the power of the people I served in that role. And I mentioned that to one of my friends at NSA, and he said, we do the same thing, but we do it to control people. So those fused. And I realized I knew exactly, and, and he said another time, he said, you understand, you have come to understand how we think, right. uh, which is um, inversely to the way the normal person thinks. And I did, and I've been immersed in that room for a long time. And part of what we're going to talk about is, uh, you know, I, I look back at the many many over 50 responses i got from from uh, security intelligence corporate and military when i said i wanted to address what became playing through the pain um a a talk i gave at DevCon that has been seen thousands of times and uh, this person all these people remain nameless but he referred to the uh, there's the underlying issue of head trauma caused by the psychosis of secrecy. It's reminiscent of childhood sexual abuse, with the burden of guilt of the victim carrying the secret, crossed with multiple personality disorders, the loss, as you were alluding to, of a sense of self, and a powerful intervention may be uh, to name necessary to name and define the phenomenon. Then it becomes a thing, and they can be shared experience as one practitioner, as you. It alluded already, uh, found with the camaraderie you had with veterans, because no one else knows, right? I, I mean, I learned in the ministry don't say when somebody's telling you something, uh, I, I know. Uh, I sat next to a guy who lost his wife after 54 years, and I, I picked up on his grief and I said, I know. And he said, Don't say that. You don't know because you still have your wife. So you know other things that are linked, maybe, but you don't know. And you know that as a veteran. Um, And I know what's happened to me over the last few years is that I respond so powerfully and emotionally to veterans uh, because the the depth of what you guys chose to do uh, and did on behalf of of all the rest of us uh, Mm. is uh, unspeakably much. And, and we don't we don't have the words to how do you how do you say to people who devoted years wow. or their lives to, to doing that and paid this price? It, it is a cost uh, of of living as, as you have. And so I tied into that. And Mobius does develop PTSD. It's more uh, detailed in the second book, The Mobius Vector, uh, because he tells more of the truth. He, he, you've probably learned in therapy. He keeps trying to tell the truth. Right. And each time he tries, he tells sometimes more and sometimes less in order to hide from the more. Right. Uh, but he's on a trajectory, a sine wave toward uh, telling more and more of what he did. Mm. And um, not just where he was present, but what what he did. And, and that's what led to in the first book to a kind of breakdown that he had. He, he, couldn't, he couldn't confront um, not only what he did, not actions, but who he had become. Right. How different that was from how much he loved the work, and obviously that's part of my story too, Mike. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I start getting engaged with security intelligence people, I I have had thirty years of a roller coaster that's been wonderful, and I love it. But I'm still asking the question: Why do I love living on the edge, living with so much ambiguity, living in the gray? Mm-hmm. Um, And it goes back to my childhood Uh, and growing up in an environment that, you know, I hesitate to use the word dysfunctional uh, because all environments are functional unless they kill you. Uh, It's just a degree of functionality and a degree of dysfunctionality. Uh, But mine had a high degree of dysfunctionality because there was nobody there. Couldn't help it. Father dropped dead. I was two. Mother went back to work. It's gone full time. Mm -hmm. Um, my brother and I kind of raised ourselves. and we both took very edgy paths through life, but very much on the edge. And I came to the conclusion only later in life that I had to do that. And that the edge, I could say when the world changed, Mm -hmm. as technology changed it, yeah, the edge is the new center. And I was well positioned to articulate what it means to live on the edge for people who had never lived on the edge before. Right. And now we're all on that edge, right?
0: Oh yeah, absolutely.
1: And we're all traumatized to a degree by life itself. You, whether you watch the news or try to cocoon yourself in a self in a reassuring, uh, self-centered view of, uh, from media, from social media, right. um, that itself is a symptom of how you don't. You don't get away with that. Uh, because there's a part of you deep down that knows uh, it's lies, and and the big lies are what what uh, change us and and affect us, uh, and and then we have to come to terms in in some kind of middle ground with the fact that there is no way to live without being in the gray. Yeah, I,
0: I totally agree. I think that you know I thought a lot about this when I was in treatment and the things that had caused by PTSD over the years and, and where the world's at in general, L- literally while I was in um, treatment, uh, the Hamas um, terrorists and, uh, broke into Israel and, you know, did some horrible things. And we watched this unfold on the TV at the same time, you know, you have the Russian war going on and then you have all of the chaos that that's going on within our own political architecture. And so as veterans, we would sit around and talk about these things. And, and, and it's not like we, it's not like we had planned on, Hey, let's sit down and watch this and discuss right. it. It, it. We couldn't stop because that has become our life. You know, when we see something going on, right. it, immediately your mindset changes and you're back in that, that time frame.
1: Right. That's, that's absolutely right. And, and Mobius, uh, not a secret that, um, he's, uh, listed to, uh, participate in rendition uh where people are tortured and my story is that i uh, was talking to people who were doing torture uh, they called it whoops death when, when someone uh, uh up 300 pounder shouldn't have bounced on him at that point okay. called the doctor to falsify the death certificate so we can say he died of natural causes but i was also talking to people who were tortured and I thought this was before it was known. The word rendition wasn't in our vocabulary yet. And I went to the uh, Wisconsin Medical College, which had a couple of bioethical, bioethicist committees. And I said, this is something you should be involved with. This is what we are doing. And they said, what do you mean we? You know, like the old Kimo joke. Uh, well, I said, well, the CIA, and they stand up for us. And they said, we, we don't have anything to do. I said, well, let me tell you what's happening. And I did. And um, the head of the committee was a therapist. She said, you know, you ought to read some these books. She gave me the name and I read a bunch on trauma. And the next time I saw her, she said, you know why I recommended those books? And I said, of course I do, because I'm dealing with people who are traumatized. Mm-hmm. She said, yeah, but can you think of another reason? And I said, no, because denial is <laughs> denial. You, it means you don't know. And she said, you're traumatized you're showing all the symptoms of secondary trauma hmm. um, and I said you know dumbly you think you're so smart until you realize how dumb you are oh oh because I thought it was normal life to be hyper vigilant hmm. uh, you know to to keep adapting the, the uh, trail trail craft and trade craft I learned for example in Israel to always go and sit toward the back watch the front uh, scope out the paths out of the restaurant. Uh, if there isn't a, uh, a guard in Israel in front of the door, I remember my, my friend was really, really anxious because they said, I've never been in a restaurant where there wasn't an armed guard, you know, one of the guys or gals out of the army uh, in, front, in front of the door. And that was serious. Uh, a bomber blew himself up and the guard and the waitress next door to my hotel, Mike's Blues Bar in, in Tel Aviv. And and so this, this has a, a, a real impact. And so you adopt a way of life, which you don't realize is, is not uh, not what others call normal. Right. Uh, so, so you are uh, hyper-vigilant. Uh, you see blacks and whites more vividly in, in, in a way, because good and evil uh, has penetrated as a binary mm. your soul so deeply that you know evil when you see it. You, you're not a theologian; you don't have to define it philosophically. But those things you described—what what Hamas did crossing the border, uh, what they're doing in Ukraine—but what so many have done so many places—it's uh, evil. And and then you're confronted with, in your puny little helplessness, what what can you do? And and the first thing you have to do is try to. Hold yourself somehow together. Um, you know, and it's like I said to one of my kids when they were having a rough time, I "said You just don't kill yourself. If you don't do that, you can get through this and you're going to be a tremendous adult. And you on the other side of treatment are obviously more integrated, more powerful, mm-hmm. more present than you could have been before. And you chose to stay with us.
0: Yeah, that was that was the hardest part for me was trying to figure out why I felt so alone, yet the, the big urge to isolate. Um, yeah. I think that's the number one killer is, is when, you know, you get stuck in your head with, you know, images or, or whatever, and you're by yourself. Yes. And there's no amount of time that can go by that that can convince you otherwise. And, uh, I mean, it literally led to, you know, me in my apartment with, with my puppy that I had just bought and him whimpering because he knew what was coming next Yeah, and really yeah. saved my life. And now, now, you know, to give him honor, I had him taken away and he uh, became a service dog. So yeah. now he watches my six, but it, it was that feeling of disconnect. Like, you know, when I watch news when, when I hear, you know, a politician saying something and, and I know what's behind it. Right. right. And it, it just drives me crazy sometimes because other people can't. And it's like, what, what news are you watching? Or, or aren't you interpreting it this way? And yeah. I found out through a, through a uh, exercise that I did in therapy. It wasn't really an exercise. It was kind of an accident. Um, I went on pass on a Saturday and I went to the mall And I got out of the Uber and as soon as I got out of the Uber, I watched it drive away and I knew my cell phone was in that car and I didn't know what to do. So I panicked, you know, I went immediately back into that military mindset, got to leave trail, you know, got to leave different points of uh, communication, you know, spread it around to where you're at locally and just stick there. So I sat there at that mall for seven hours waiting to be retrieved. Luckily I got my cell phone back and I got everything back and everything was fine. But the next day in treatment, we had our veterans group and we're all sitting around and um, Rajani, who was our director, fantastic woman, um, pretty much broke it out and said, you know, these are the things you did. And, but this is a military mindset. This doesn't equate into civilian life. So if you get lost in a mall, once you're out of treatment and you don't have these people around you, how does that convert? Right. I think, you know, living in that lifestyle for so long, it's hard to flip that mindset to go from the black and white to, to color. And right. for me right. then, before I went to treatment, there was no color. Everything was black and white and everything seemed to be falling apart.
1: Right. Um, and these are the no- natural, what they call the sequelae, the consequences and manifestations of trauma. Yeah. This is what inevitably happens. So it's not that you're doing anything wrong or bad, but it sure can feel that way because right. you're you're down a rabbit hole and you don't know how to climb out. It's pretty deep. Yeah. Uh, yeah, those moments of isolation. I'm thinking of my own, and they often are three three in the morning, four in the morning,
0: mm-hmm.
1: when you wake up and then you uh, you remember things. And uh, I'm I'm getting I'm not getting older. I'm I'm old and uh one of the things that happens your short-term memory i know you're mike jones i think Uh, i recognize (laughs) you and i know your name which to me is a heroic uh achievement but the long-term memories are so so vivid right what comes back is stuff i uh was involved in stuff i did before i knew what i was doing Mm. uh before before i knew it was wrong uh before what it really had, I mean, I didn't break the law or anything, but it had consequences for me psychologically. Mm. Um, it violated my own moral code, and 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 I just did it. And um, and these memories, the worst of them, if it hurt somebody, uh, mm. come back in in the, the middle of the night. Now, you you uh, al- also uh, talked about uh, the challenge. I th- I think of seeing. A news item, for example, it's so hard for us to watch the news because it is it's entertainment. I mean, it's uh, it's not news. And the television once invented what they call the news story. Mm -hmm. It didn't exist before the media existed, which made these short little pieces, these little segments of uh, statement without context at all and no way to get context because they don't provide it um the you don't want to watch it but if you don't watch it you don't know what other things people are are believing and what you said really resonated with me i've had people when i've given speeches my my passion has been for the truth for the truth big t uh, forever whether it was in literature in the ministry or the last 30 years of the work the work i've done and and that means communicating because the other part of me is i'm extroverted and I love to and need to connect with people on a deep level, uh, and use empathy to to respond. Um, and some of them would call out during talks, "I stop, I don't want to hear that," uh, and they meant it. I don't want to know the truth, because as uh, Nicholson said, "You can't handle the truth," right. uh, and a lot of people can't. And that segues. I'm not going to go there because that's a whole other topic to the work I've done with UFO phenomena for 45 years. Talk about trying to tell people the truth in a in a nuanced, cogent, intelligent way to leave out all the BS that's floating out there, but to tell the basic truth. Right. Uh, same thing. They don't say, I don't want to know that. They say, oh, you're you're full of it. Yeah. You're, you're a kook, you're, you're crazy. So what have you found? I, I mean, for me, it's still a challenge. I'm supposed to be a speaker and a writer. And as you see in Mobius, he's talking all the time mm. about how he more than manipulates how he deceives mm. people and his final crisis with his girl, Penny. Mm. Um, people don't know that that's a sine That's non. it's a necessity if you work full time in the intelligence community to right. lie to everyone, including your own family. Exactly. So the basis of relationship is trust. You know, and I, I don't know. I think the story is in the book that is a true story of a young man who came to NSA after getting all his clearances. And he walked in for his first day of work and discovered that his parents worked there. And that's not atypical to not know what your parents do or they find some coded way to tell you. But talk about full disclosure. Never talk about the truth. Never. And that's why they tell you don't marry outside of the agency. Well, that's like telling people don't marry outside of the asylum.
0: Right.
1: <laughs> you know, you may be crazy in a way, so you will do better with a partner who is also crazy in a way because uh, then you don't have to explain too much to each other. Because uh, <laughs> you have a, a folly, adieu, a do, a craziness shared by both, right? right? And and people in the agency, they, you know, they put that aside. They yeah. put aside what it does to you. Right. And, and, and so it was very meaningful to me when a, a guy named uh, Steve Miles, who wrote a book called uh, Oath Betrayed, a doctor and bioethicist, and he studied Abu Ghraib, and he took all these thousands of files the ACLU had gotten through FOIA, and they didn't connect naturally. They're, I think they were PDF files, and he connected where doctors were when he found out was our doctors were complicit, not complicit, participating fully. Uh, in both torture and the in the aftermath right and and um, he wrote a book called oath Betrayed, detailing it and he showed all the symptoms of uh secondary trauma by his research and he wrote another one called uh the torture doctors um and, and we met for lunch not not long ago to talk about who we are and we recognize we're, we're kindred spirits we can't not want to know we want to know but we have to find a strategy that enables us to to bear what we know.
0: And I think that's, I think it's the hard part for me is the, you know, having to navigate communication between different types of people, right? So there's people that I can communicate, you know, the things that I've done in my past and, and I, I can be, you know, full disclosure, but then I have to change that narrative to suit other people's expectations or, or, or to keep things... I guess congruent um, yeah. where things function uh, and it never was really a, an importance of of mine to like really maintain that that function and I think what happened was I didn't know what PTSD was I didn't know how to label it all I could say was I was angry um and I mean I've literally the past 20 years the the PTSD has really just, Behaved for me. It has taken over every aspect of my life uh, to the point where you know I I I was tired and I didn't feel like I could do it anymore. Um, But the the navigation and having to bend the story and and try to protect certain people and not protect other people, it's I think that's the the hard part, and I think that alone within itself causes trauma.
1: Right. Oh, absolutely. Uh, The and and in fact, that's Steve Miles wrote a wonderful review. Mobius, I think he did too by now, and and he said no, he has not read a, a book, it's a wonderful review just to read, that illuminates so clearly what it does to intelligence practitioners or military to do the work, uh, the consequences of doing the, the work itself. And, and that's what Mobius says, you have to have all these different scenarios and the energy it takes and the stress it causes to try to remember who you are to who. Um, and, and what story, maybe not what stories or scenarios, but how you've presented yourself. Right. Your and making sure you don't slip over that line because then you'll see that look on their face that says, I'm sorry, what, what? <laughs> And um, I'm, I'm gonna say from my own experience, without, I don't need to go into detail either, but um, this is the experience of people who get into recovery groups like AA, or any of the other uh, fundamental anonymous groups that exist in order to help you redeem yourself from what you didn't know was moral insanity, Uh, literally. uh, That's where Recovery Alcoholic good friend uh, says it. I didn't see it, and that's the denial. I didn't see the moral insanity of the life I was living. And when it hits, I, I mean, uh, in, in my memory, years ago, and you suddenly, you have what they call a moment of clarity, uh, if, if, which comes through grace because you don't make it happen because you've been living in denial all these years and you suddenly see uh, what's real. And at, at first, it's just speaking for myself, it's kind of a searing terror at who you were and didn't know. Uh, and, and that isn't to extend it too far into, and I'm not talking about criminal activity. I'm, I'm I'm talking about moral lapses and suddenly seeing that you didn't see what you were doing and now you do. And the fact that you have a conscience like Mobius after that fact is, is why you can turn and go in a different direction. Uh, but also... It's a a real psychological wake-up. And then you need exactly what you described. If You go to a 12-step meeting of any kind and learn to trust and learn to self-disclose. It is like a spy coming clean. Uh, They should have 12-step groups in each of this, what, 17, 18 now agencies. Uh, Say, I'm a recovering intelligence professional. Because the story of Mobius in the second book, and then the third, with Valerie, his new squeeze, is that she teaches him how to be more normal, because he never was, and and how to tell the truth, which he never did. And and people will ask my wife in 40 years, well, is there any of you in that portrait? And uh, because of who she is, she says, well, there are a few things, you know. But the answer is absolutely. She uh, served that redeeming function uh, for for me. Um, so you learn in Tostoker, yeah, you get to a point where you also forget that not everybody lives in that world that you have lived in. Right. You're describing all the ancillary activities that it included with people who accept you for who you are and understand it. And and then you lose sight of how it sounds to what I call a normal. Right. Uh, the normal is just somebody who hasn't had that moment of clarity yet, <laughs> because you, you realize no nobody is free of, of, of a ride on the boat that we're describing. Right, it's it in different ways, but believing you're free of what you and I are discussing right now is 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 part of the, part of the problem. Right. Right. So I, I once said when I worked in the church, the whole church, for good reason, needed one massive twelve-step group to escape the religious ideation which held it captive. Well, you imagine how well that went over in a sermon. Um, right. You know. Um, so, so how can you say anything about how you manage or how you navigate this tricky passage? Sure. Yeah, it,
0: it's for, for me just being fresh out. I, I've been out of treatment since October 30th. And for me, it just takes like a daily. I, I have to check myself on how I'm feeling or, or why I'm feeling that way. My dog's barking. Sorry. Um, and it's it's difficult sometimes because, you know, I, I want to react, but I, I have to remember and I keep telling myself it, the key is not to react. The key is to observe analyze think about it then speak and for me that that used to be hard but it's starting to get easier every day and plus I take a lot of I take a medication in the morning uh to help with the anxiety and I take medication at night to help with the nightmares Um, but that's that and I have to stay connected you know I still talk to the guys that I went to treatment with I still check in on them they had semi-elected me, somehow elected me leader of the house. And so I was in charge of all these these veterans and, and helping them get on their path and on their way. And so I, I keep up with them and that connection that, that, you know, we were together as brothers during the struggle. And so I can I can tap into that. And that's a huge support network for me. Um, so many things happened in treatment. I, I lost two friends. Um, one of them was a technician who everybody knew I I hurt my knee in treatment. And so they bring down my medication at night when it was raining and it was always him. It was always Nick. Um, Unfortunately, Nick went MIA for like two weeks and then come to find out he overdosed on fentanyl and died. Mm. Um, Another guy that I was close to finished treatment, went to his first uh, stop after treatment, overdosed and died. Um, So even within treatment, I, I was still having to deal with those those emotions and 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 how to operate through through that type of environment, um, but it was it was really interesting. But today it's it's much easier than it was in treatment.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I'm not in a confined space. If I need to get out, I can get out. Um, you know, and I I have people now that I can connect with. Um, right. That was the problem before is I I didn't feel connected because, like you said, everybody that I come into contact with, I had to be a certain person for. Um, and it, it got really tiring. Um, a lot of people know that I did informant work for a while. And it just, you know, when you have to live that life for such a long time, it, it really does mentally, physically, and spiritually take a toll on you. Right. And I, I, the spiritually part, the spirituality part is probably the most important because, you know, why am I here? What, why, what is my purpose? Because, the lack of purpose um, that I think a lot of us feel once we get away from that, from what we're used to, that lack of purpose is so strong. You know, you spent all this time, you know, doing this at, at this pace and, and coming into contact with these people. And then all of a sudden that's taken away and it's really hard to find that purpose. I had to, had to look at my life and kind of analyze, you know, where that purpose resided and that's what we cultivate now.
1: Yeah, and I, I hear exactly what you're saying and what you're describing. And this is where it, it people who don't know what we're talking about can can sometimes think, oh, they're getting religious on us. But there's a big difference between religion and spirituality. And what you just described to invoke the 12-step model again, and and don't forget the 12-step model when Dr. Bob and uh, those that couple invented AA was based on evangelical Christianity or Protestant Christianity. And the 12 steps are based on the steps of atonement, redemption, and so on. Uh, They didn't invent it. They just translated it into the vernacular so they could get out of that religious craziness and just talk about the tools and techniques that work. And that's what religions, in my understanding, have been really good for, is uh, discovering, maintaining, articulating, and sharing the tools and techniques that work to make us, uh, as I said was the result of my going into the ministry, a more fully human being. And that that's the goal. Uh, that's what ministry taught me, to how to be, become a more fully human being. And people would come to me for help, but they all taught me uh, through their resilience, uh, like yours, their choices, their elasticity, and their, again, like yours, genuine heroism, when all the chips were down, um, that... I shouldn't like Bogart, you know, said we shouldn't whine about uh, our little problems in a world where they don't amount to a hill of beans. Um, but how do you do that? Well, what you do is what you described as a spiritual program and everything you said about knowing you have a call you can make. And then more important, even making it. Um, you know, I know people were in OA, Overeaters Anonymous, you know, it had a slogan. um, call before you take that first compulsive bite uh and try to short-circuit the the overwhelming desire to head for for the sweet or whatever the high fat uh which works uh, in a way but it has consequences which are negative uh so you, but you're what what you're talking about is what they call in that context taking an inv- taking your inventory and when you do the 12 steps for the first time there's Here's a big one. I don't remember what step it was, but where you do a fearless and searching moral inventory um, and find different uh, standards to use to identify what you have done, what you have left undone. And then you discover once you do that, you know, this is confession and absolution. The absolution comes when another human being listens and accepts what you're saying, but it doesn't say, all right, now you're off the hook. It means now that you know how to do this, you got to do it every damn day uh, or most days. Uh, you have to constantly monitor yourself uh, and live not with hypervigilance but with vigilance in order to sustain and maintain the state of clarity and the state of mind and the liberating experience that you're describing that you discover is possible. Because when you're back there in the, in the weeds, you don't know it's possible. And that's right. That's one of the intentions of treatment is to teach you not only is it possible, but you got it. We are here for you. We know what we're doing, but you need everybody else in this program.
0: Yeah. I reached, I reached really hard when I was at my lowest point. And the sad thing was, was the first call I made was to the VA. Um, And a friend of mine, Jack's also called the VA crisis line. Uh, to get me help and when we tried to get me into treatment uh, the independence fund was involved and the VA turned me down um, because I wasn't quote-unquote bad enough uh, I I, I wasn't an alcoholic or an addict so there were people who needed right. their assistance more than I did obviously um, which I found really disheartening because you know I, I felt like you know, these are the people who are supposed to have my six when I get out. And, and and I was really reaching out to save my life.
1: Yeah.
0: And they were shutting the door on me. I, I was so bewildered. I, I didn't know what to do. And then the Independence Fund stepped in and got me got me where I needed to go. And, and it's a good thing. And I'll tell you what, a short story about Banyan um, down in uh, uh, Pompano Beach. Rajani uh, was the director. She was ex-Special Forces Um, She was army. She was all of probably five foot tall and, you know, she's just a great woman, but to hear the struggle that she went through working intelligence and, and being on the special teams and then going through the hard times in her life and and what landed her, you know, where she is now, it's all a common story. You know, it's, it's all of that. You know, we give all, but when we get done, we have, we feel like we have nothing left and no purpose. And, uh, you know, for veterans, it it really rings true, especially like, you know, when, when things pop off around the world, you know, I, I can't speak for other veterans, but I enlisted both times at the precipice of war. Um, there's just something about it. I, I can't, I can't explain the, the magnetism or the attraction. Um, but a lot of us run to it. instead of running from it and, you know, I'll never forget one of the most prominent things that, that Rajani ever told me um, when I was when I first got the treatment, I was hell. I, I wouldn't talk to anybody. I was, you know, if somebody looked at me wrong, you know, I was flying off the handle. And Rajani sat me down and she said, there's no more battles. There's no more battles to fight, you know, put put down everything. You know, it's over. Yeah. And from that point on, I think that was the the moment of clarity was that, yeah, you're right. You know I, I've been looking for for things to fight I, I've been I've been pushing myself trying to find that that fulfillment you know and just yeah you can't do that you can't do that your entire life um it kills people
1: no I I, I know <laughs> and uh you remind me when uh you know when I left the ministry at 49 I set out for the next 30 years of 79 um, on a new path and I was passionate about it um and at some point, my primary physician I was seeing him about some negligible thing and he said well given what you've accomplished at that time he said you really you have nothing more to prove now you can you know people say you can kind of kick back well I don't know that it was something to prove but I had a lot more to do and purpose uh, the way you talk about purpose it's the same for me at this age um, the thing about cancer is, is you, it may or may not come back in a virulent form, uh, but it 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 sharpens your vision. Um, and, and you know that if you have a purpose, you better you better execute it. And my purpose, what I learned in the ministry, what I learned teaching literature in my twenties my is to contribute to and the ministry taught me how to care with intelligence. Uh and and that was a a, a big learning, what worked and what didn't work, and you learn by trial and error. And, uh, you re- regret that you're a slow learner, but your intention is always to, as I say, empower others, help them become more uh, than they were when they walked in the door. And, you know, when you start, you say, well, my, my ability, because I'm so such hot stuff, is I can take somebody from 1 to 100 in a session. And what you learn is after 10 or 12 sessions, if you got from 47 to 48, you you have done wonderful stuff. Because you just move people, you just want people to keep moving in the right direction, and you're never going to get to 100. Um, so um, you have to find a purpose. In my book, that it, depending on how much money you have includes your livelihood. Um, I'm still giving speeches, I'm still writing books, but when that doctor said you have nothing more to prove, no, but. I hadn't written a full book yet, and the first one came out when I was 60. And the third Mobius book is the 13th. You know, so there's a part of me that says, what the hell? Uh, Life is, as as one of the characters says in the second Mobius book, life is a a goddamn sight more mysterious than I ever dreamed. The universe is more mysterious than than I ever imagined because the third book goes into uh, remote viewing and uh, ufo phenomena in relationship to the intelligence communities and i realized you know I, I could write a whole book i did foam is about an alien who comes here to do improv with with people on earth because we're the sexiest and funniest species they found in the whole galaxy and he studies how to be a human by going on the internet and watching cable tv and so right. on so he thinks you you meet some woman and you're in bed in 10 minutes because that's what happens on uh, you know Grey's Anatomy uh, or The Bachelor or whatever. Uh, so he he learns to do that. It's a, the book is full of ribald sex, and I think in the end everybody in the book winds up at a Sexaholics Anonymous meeting together. Uh, but that's kind of what America <laughs> probably uh, needs uh, collectively. Uh, but the 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 point I guess I'm, I'm headed toward is. Uh, he, when I came to write that third book, I realized it was harder to have the courage to talk about remote viewing and psychic phenomena, which I know is real and UFO phenomena, which I know is real within the constraints of uh, sensibility and intelligence understanding. Um, you could talk about all that sexual stuff. Nobody cares. You, you can, you know, get a, you know, uh, only fans channel, um, uh, you know, my, my nurse, the surgeon's nurse said to me, have you ever heard of OnlyFans? So you kind of say, yeah, I read about it, right? And uh, she said, well, Derek, did you know there are people who pay other people because of the way they tie their shoelaces in a video? And I said, no, I didn't know about that one. But I do know that everything that can imprint itself sexually does. And everybody talks about it these days compared to when I grew up and you had to go in the back door of Frenchie's porn shop. Um, and go behind the swinging door where he had the the magazines, um, you, you know. But to talk about psychic phenomena and and ufology, um, that took more of a push because I knew, like the things I have said in the past, the resistance to both is is profound. But the psychic phenomena, and the reason I wanted to bring it up, is we are not alone, um, and remote viewing illuminates, if nothing else, that we are really embedded in a web of consciousness with one another. And when we're up here in our prefrontal cortex world, like we're talking now, um, that doesn't know it. It can formulate statements about it. But when you're down, when I say down, it's a metaphor. When you're into the deepest states of consciousness, which I have experienced, you experience yourself as connected. Uh, you are not alone. And uh, Edgar Mitchell, Apollo 14 astronaut, told me when he came back from the moon for three days, in and out of altered state, and the altered state was everything is connected, everything is connected. And then he would see that we construct a reality of separateness, and then he'd be back in the altered state. And he once he knew, and knew that he knew, he could not know, and he spent the rest of his life trying to tell people what he discovered with uh, inevitable consequences. So I met his sister-in-law along the way, and she said, oh, you take him seriously? Everybody in the family thinks he's a nut. And I said, no, he, he's he's not a nut. He's having a hard time with his left brain scientific engineer's paradigm, articulating what is best said in the right brain metaphorical way, because we don't know how else to say it. And she didn't know what that meant, of course. She said, well, in other words, he's kind of a nut you know, and, and, uh, and, and yet even when you're alone in meditation, I, I am connected and I have, you know, you hate to be so blunt about it because it's love. I experience the connected tissue of love in the universe, um, and, and have had manifestations at different times that that is fundamental despite the horror, Uh the horror that we create and, and experience so that I think that's something to remember that even when you're in silence um you're not alone you're you're connected and uh when I said the ministry taught me to be a more fully human being part of that was discovered that the fictional persona I had adopted just as a person was it was wrong and that's what conversion really is it's saying I have grounded myself in the wrong universe. The universe that I require in order to achieve my purpose is one in which every day I find a means to art- articulate a new, every day, why I'm doing what I'm doing. And so so here I am writing a book again. The time will come, I can see, and as you probably know, when our brains are not gonna give us the ability to do. I mean, as I close on 80, I'm thrilled I just gave three speeches, I'm doing podcasts, and I'm writing. My brain is still functional, but uh, as as the replicant Roy said in Blade Runner, we're built well, but not to last. So it just provides a little more urgency and a sharper, harder edge to having to find that purpose, lest we drift off into ennui and, and boredom and lose ourselves again. So now you and I don't have any choice but to do the things that we know we need to do, the things that work. And that was my definition of spirituality. Um, a Zen monk, when I attended the Zen Center in San Francisco, came out and he said, do you know why we bow to one another? And everybody wanted to sound, sound religious and spiritual, so they all had, oh, we bow to acknowledge the Godhead and the Atman. And so and he says, no, no. When everybody was done, he said, we bow because we, we find that things work better when you bow. <laughs> and so. That became my, my definition of spirituality. What is it, the knowing of which and the doing of which makes things work better? It's, it's that basic on, on a level of, of wide, wide understanding of our humanity, not narrow. And, and so uh, <laughs> we're, we're kind of riding the same rails here, I, I think. Uh, we have to take our inventory in a way. We have to do what we know how to do. But you can never feel so alone that you are in a prison of your own mind and believe that nobody cares.
0: And that's that's the hard part, I think, is coming to the realization that people do care. Because I got to the point where I didn't care about myself. Because, you know, like you talk about the personas, right? And I think that, that that's a that's a huge key to existence, is we all have. Different personas, but we also have multiple personas depending on who we're interacting with. Um, and you, you talk about remote viewing and a sense of connectedness. So, you know, we talked about this briefly the last time I I interviewed you. And, and when I was a kid, I, I learned that I could think of somebody that I was close to and be able to kind of tell what was in their environment, whether sure. it be you know a shiny can or a window to your left. Um, and a lot of people it would freak them out, but. It, it's that I think I think everybody has the potential of doing it. It's just a matter of being close to somebody and thinking about truly thinking about that person and concentrating on that thought. Right. And you can begin to see what what they're going through or feel what they're going through or see what's on that desk. And I think the, the CIA did an experiment where they gave people um, different coordinates and wanted them to remotely view, think about those coordinates, think about what was in that area. And they found that people were able to get pretty close to doing that remote viewing, even back when they first started. Um, I, I truly believe there's people out there that that still do remote viewing that are very good at it. Um, I've seen oh, a couple.
1: And of- absolutely, and, and when I asked, um, probably shouldn't say his name, but I asked somebody who was very involved with it. I said, "Well, I understood that they uh, ended the program," and he said, "That's a cover story. It just went deeper underground because it works." It doesn't work all the time, and it doesn't work in isolation, separate from other forms of intelligence. But the hits have been dramatic, and that's what I depict in my book. And, and Mobius and his girl Valerie have a mind-blowing experience um, when, like, I, you know, I should give away all the <laughs> cool things in the book. But in the third book, um, he failed at remote viewing uh, because all he got was a parking lot. And they told him, you, "You're not doing so well at this. You need to do get a desk job here." And uh, he insisted on driving up to look at the parking lot. And they did, and it was a parking lot. And somebody came by and and said, um, "He said, was there a building?" And the guy said, "Well, yeah, there was." He tells them in great detail the building I knew so well, and and it was torn down 20 years ago. And he described it, and they went and got a picture of it, and they looked at what he had drawn during his remote viewing, and what he described was the building that had been there. And these things have happened in remote viewing. People have seen both the past and the future. And that's a major thread and theme of uh, uh, Mobius out of time. It is out of time. Uh, time isn't what we think. And clocks don't measure time. They measure ticks. Uh, and and so there are profound experiences based on what I know about remote viewing. None of the examples in that book are are, are made up. Uh, but the the other thing is, um, I, I got a, I got a letter from someone I I really admire, really care about, and uh, they I had just written a, a detailed thing to them, email about what I thought. Now that it felt to me like a life shift, and and this is what I hoped they could emphasize in their life going forward, and I got a letter from this person said admit it you heard me thinking of telling you that we have the same wavelength right this is what you're describing a few days ago I was thinking of you and the need to communicate that I needed to the names all the things that I had named in my email before we spoke that you know what I'm thinking but surprises me and doesn't surprise me at all of course you did maybe you always do and that was a moment of sublime communion with a person i loved and cared about and that's why that you don't know it when you're doing it necessarily but i was so focused on what they the the transition they were in that i could literally see see them and and see who they were which is a magnificent person uh, who has achieved an incredible amount but it's ultimately the the generalized love that focuses on a person in such a way that you see them maybe it's from avatar i see you you know or whatever the navi said but that stuff is not a joke right um so i heard
0: heard that everybody you see in your dreams you've seen before and i I tell people when i was when i was in high school i would skip school or find something else to do if I had deja vu because that meant that I was going to get in trouble that day. Yeah. So I, I had horrible, horrible, uh, episodes of deja vu and they were never untrue. You know, if I decided to walk into a room and I had that deja vu, something was going to happen in that room.
1: Right. And that's the other thing about psychic phenomena. It often seems we can't make it happen, but we right. can facilitate the likelihood that it might when, when it does. And I have a feeling that it often does come during times of, stress or apprehension where we need to know something, right then, then we do. And often it is on behalf of other people. The ministry it happened all the time. I have no doubt the psychic phenomenon was real. And one of my favorite instances when I was in the ministry, I was in Salt Lake City, and I was visiting someone at the nursing home every morning. And it was actually the mother of the prisoner who was in the nursing home. Mm-hmm. And I would stop by in the morning, they go by you have a list of things to do. And I I did them every day, and then I'd gone out to lunch, and I'm coming back, and Salt Lake City has very, very wide streets, because Brigham Young wanted to be able to do a U-turn with an ox cart, right? (laughs) So they're four lanes wide, and I'm in the left-hand lane, ready to turn left at the corner to go back to my church, and the thought just hit me. I'd better get back there, and I went over to the right-hand lane. That's how I know it was anomalous and not typical, because I never went back a second time, and... And I changed lanes, went over there, went. And here comes my prisoner down the walk as I pull up. And she said, how did they find you so fast? Mother just died. And I ran to the nurse and said, you've got to find Richard. Now, you can explain that any way you want as a coincidence. Bull. Right. No, that was one of a number of instances where I know that I knew And the trick is, don't discard it or discount it. Act on what you know. The worst that can happen is you look like a fool. Right. And I look like a fool so much of the time. What? Who cares? Right. We all do. (laughs) Yeah. So do it. I'm seeing the time. I guess we allotted an hour to this. It's about an hour, isn't it?
0: Yeah, it is. Um, I I get so enthralled with with our discussion. You know, I just your book means so much to me, and and the friendship that we formed means a lot to me. Well, same to um, me. Yeah, I look at you as a grandfather I never had, with all the information. And uh,
1: well, say I father, say I, fathers. But...
0: Yeah, I, I wish I would have had a mentor like you when when I was going through the ropes of, of the IC and, and and different situations. Because having known what I know now, and, and through our friendship, things would have been a lot different. I think. Yeah. Um, but again, you know, the experience and, and now the biggest thing for me is is helping other people right. and really right. trying to help other people that go through the same struggle because right. life, life hands you some crazy stuff. And and you know, like with your cancer, you know, you never know what life holds. No. Um, and you know, I, I appreciate everything that we've formed together, you know, the the bond or whatever. Um, Richard, it's always a pleasure.
1: It's great to talk to you always, Mike. I'm so glad you're here. I'm glad I'm here. And I'm glad we can have this conversation. We'll have more in the future.
0: Absolutely. I I wish you the best with with the cancer. And I'll be praying for you about that. Thanks. Um, And, you know, I look forward to reading more of the books. And thanks once again for sending me the copies. And and with your personal touch, that means a lot to me. Uh, So be safe and enjoy your holidays and get some rest. You too. Take care of yourself. Thank you, Richard. You too. Bye.